So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would cause us to see the glory of God the Father shining in the face of Jesus the Christ. Cause us to preach. Jesus, it'd be great if you, you, you just preach, Jesus, and you can use me to do that. You're the word. So preach. In Jesus' name we pray these things, Lord God. Amen. Well, uh, we've been interrupted a bit. We've been interrupted by guest preachers, COVID-19, and Easter, which is a good thing to be interrupted by. Uh, but uh, in case you forgot, since the new year, we've been preaching through the Sermon on the Mount you remember that Jesus came preaching, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain, like Moses, sat down and he began to teach. He tells them that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Then in Matthew 5.21, he begins to expound the law with these six antithetical statements that take this two-part form. First, you have heard it was said followed by this second statement, but I say to you. Now, if you heard it said, well, you've heard a law, correct? It and it. You've received objective knowledge of good and evil, like words on a stone or print on a page, or maybe uh, a traffic revela re regulation uh, read to you by a police officer. You've heard a law and, and it. But if you hear someone say, I say to you, well, the law has just become a life. Six times Jesus recites a law. You would expect 10 times, but six. You expect 10 like the Ten Commandments, but Matthew and Jesus are intent on six, like the six days of creation. Remember, on the sixth day, uh, man is made in God's image. Throughout Scripture, um, there are these series of sixes, and then something literally earth-shattering happens at the edge of seven. So six times, Jesus recounts a portion of the law, as well as the way that it's been interpreted, but then as if he's, as if he's God or something, he says, but I say to you. And now each time he doesn't make the law easier. That's what I think we, we would tend to think. Each time he doesn't make the law easier, but like infinitely harder. Number one, you've heard don't murder, but I say get angry and you're liable to the hell of fire. Two, you've heard don't commit adultery, but I say look with lust and you already did. Three, you've heard it said don't divorce without a certificate. I say marry a divorcee and it seems like he's saying you commit adultery. Four, you've heard don't swear falsely. I say never lie. Five, you've heard an eye for an eye. I say turn the other cheek. Verse 43 begins the sixth antithesis, which we began to preach on two weeks ago. This is the sixth command which anticipates the seventh, like the seventh day, God's rest, when everything is good and it is perfected, it is finished, to tell us that. Verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, 
For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Love your enemies. That's the sixth command, so this must be the seventh. Next verse, verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect. Teleoi, from, from, from telos. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, period. Perfect means perfect. Perfect, and it comes at the end of a perfectly impossible string of expectations. Perfect patience, perfect chastity, perfect fidelity, perfect honesty, perfect forgiveness, perfect love, and some warnings about hellfire. Perfect. What is God thinking? Five hundred and thirteen years ago yesterday, May 2nd, 1507, a young German priest was officiating at his very first communion. He got to the portion of the Mass where he was to pray the prayer of consecration over the bread and the wine, the body and blood of, of Jesus. When the moment came, he froze. His eyes glassed, glazed over. His beads of perspiration began to form on his head. The, the congregation shifted nervously. His father, who was there to watch, just glared at him. The boy had been trained as the most promising young lawyer in perhaps all of Germany, but, but due to a panic in a thunderstorm, he, this failure of his son had vowed to become a monk, and now he was failing at even this, thought Hans, his, his father. The young monk's lower lip began to quiver, but the words just wouldn't come out. He went limp and then just sat down. He quit. Later he would write what had gone through his head and through his heart at that moment. I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address such majesty, seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince? Who am I that I should lift up mine eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? The angels surround him. At his nod the earth trembles. And shall I, a miserable little pygmy, say, I want this, I ask for that? For I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I am speaking to the living, eternal, and the true God. Of course, that monk's name was Martin Luther. He would spend hours every day in the confessional. Once, he spent six hours just confessing the sins from the previous day. And remember, he was not living on the Las Vegas Strip. He was living in a medieval monastery. Martin Luther's obsession with sin, late-night arguments with the devil, and battles with all sorts of nervous disorders are just legendary. So many have speculated that he was insane. But maybe he was most sane, because he was brilliant. He just read the words of Scripture and connected the dots. 
You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. His earthly father was very imperfect, and Martin couldn't even meet his expectations. If his heavenly father was perfect and demanded absolute perfection, well, you see, that meant absolute neurosis for Martin. I had the world's best earthly father, and I'm still neurotic. I mean, you can ask my wife. I was nervous. <laughs> I was nervous as a kid, and I've definitely been nervous as a pastor. I once dropped the communion bread, and it rolled off the stage and into the car. I had to get down, go brush it off, and start over again. And preaching has been absolutely terrifying at times. I've worried what people will think. But most of all, I've worried what God will think. I can't tell you the number of times at two in the morning, sitting in my office alone, I've just cried out to God saying, God, what were you thinking? Why would you ask a person like me to talk about you? It's impossible. Can it quit? I get Martin Luther. I mean, just leading a worship service can make you feel insane. You have to preach about love, peace, faith, and grace, fully aware that God is perfect and that God demands perfection. And there is this place called hell where supposedly God, who is love, will endlessly torture people who don't have perfect faith in amazing grace. And so you say God is salvation, but you also find ways to say, and you better save yourself from God because he's holy and just and perfect. How do you say the perfect prayer? How do you sing the perfect song? How do you make the perfect offering? How do you preach the perfect sermon? How do you even begin to explain communion? How do you perfectly love the Lord your God? Someone once asked Luther, do you love God? Love God, responded Luther. Sometimes I hate him. Luther knew that perfect love is the law, and it made him hate God. But I don't think Luther was insane. I suspect he was most sane. And if you are sane, perhaps you ought to go insane and quit. One old man I know and dearly love used to say, I went to church every Sunday as a kid. I went to church and every Sunday I heard that I was going to hell. So one day I figured, why even try? I'm going to hell anyway. Why try? In other words, this is impossible. I quit. Well, Martin Luther didn't quit. Actually, in another way, he did quit and and that's when he actually began. So I should say he didn't stop wrestling. He didn't stop wrestling. He wrestled the word, and the word wrestled him. And so let's wrestle. Let's wrestle the word. Let's read it again. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. As we, as we mentioned last time, the Bible never actually says hate your enemy, and yet from many passages, it would be easy to arrive at that conclusion. 
When my children were little and I disciplined, I think they often arrived at that conclusion about me. <laughs> Dad won't buy me any gum. He won't buy me gum because he hates me. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love, the Lord, love, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Now, now this, is, this is huge, but for the second time, Jesus has told these folks on the hillside that their father is in heaven. He's gonna say it 16 times before the sermon is over. He's even going to tell them to pray, command them to pray, our Father. See, he's telling them that his Father is their Father, which makes him their big brother and each one of them brothers and sisters to each other and his little brothers and sisters. And if God is their Father, that makes each of them a son or a daughter of God. That's... That's the way it works. Jesus says, your father in heaven. But you see, these people on the hillside, they come from the Decapolis. That's Gentile territory, as well as Galilee and Judea, which is Jewish territory. And none of these folks have said this sinner's prayer or been to vacation Bible school or confessed that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for their sins. And that's just huge. This is huge for most of us because most of us have been told that not everyone is, is a child of, of God. We've been told that either A, only some are chosen to be his children, and so some are chosen to be his enemies, and you'll know which one you are by whether or not you have faith, or B, you must choose. You must choose to become his child, and that choice is called But you see, either way, not everyone in that scenario is a, is a child of God, we've been told. For clearly, God showers his children with infinite mercy, and those who aren't his children, he showers with an infinite lack of mercy called justice. They say God is love and also the opposite of love, in other words, justice. And they call that good news. But when you think about it, maybe it's infinite neurosis. God is absolute, complete, and undinning, re re relentless, unconditional love, and just the opposite. Well, anyway. Jesus says, your father. If Jesus says to you, your father, that makes you a son. He says, your father, which makes you a son, but he also says, love your enemies that you may be sons. May be is genesthe in Greek. It's where we get our word genesis. Jesus is saying, love your enemies that you may become what you already are. 
So, so this is weird, but it turns out that, that all of us have been conceived in space and time, but none of us have actually been entirely born. Uh, none of us except our big brother Jesus. He's the firstborn from the dead, firstborn of all creation. We're not really even born, let alone finished in our Father's image. And yet he knows who we are. So Jesus is saying, be like your dad. And now he's telling us what our dad is like. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and he sends his rain on the just and the unjust. What's he saying? I think he's saying the moon belongs to everyone. The moon belongs to everyone. The best things in life are free. The stars belong to everyone. The best things in life are free. The flowers in spring, the robins that sing, sunbeams that shine, they're yours and they're mine. Love can come to everyone. The best things in life are free. I think, I think that's what he's saying. See, I think Jesus is saying, I know that Dad made a covenant with some of you at Mount Sinai. It was a conditional covenant. He told you that some blessings would be yours if you obeyed the law, and some blessings would be lost if you did not obey the law. But did you notice that the rain falls in the Decapolis just like it does in Judea? Did you notice the moon shines in Iran just as it does in Denver? Did you notice that the sun shone on Adolf Hitler and Judas Iscariot and Genghis Khan just as it now shines on you? The rain falls on the just and the unjust. And by the way, God our Father is just. When my kids were little, I often made small blessings conditional. I would often purposefully withhold blessings like gum at the supermarket or one more TV show before bed. I would withhold blessings and my children would usually complain saying, you don't love me. You never let me do anything. You never give me anything. Apparently entirely unaware that they slept in a warm bed in a beautiful house, having just eaten a wonderful dinner, breathing each breath because a few years before, Susan and I desired to share our love with a child made in our image to whom we would delight in giving ourselves and all things with us. If you're a parent, you know why I would sometimes withhold blessings. It was so that they would see that I am the blessing. And you know why I would sometimes make blessings conditional. It was so that they would come to know my unconditional love. They each needed to know that I didn't have to give them anything. For I wanted each to know that I chose to give them everything. And most of all, I chose to give them me and all my love. If you love your children, you will discipline your children in the hope that they will learn that love 
is free. But refuse to discipline your children and they will be miserable. And at least, at least until another teaches them to love and to be loved in, in freedom. Next verse. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? You understand if you love for a reward, your love is not free. And you actually don't know love, for, for you constantly seek to take love and control love and so crucify love, and so you haven't known love or been known by love. You cannot love for a reward. Love is the reward. Love is your Father in heaven. To, to love is to be made in His image. That's the reward. For if you love those who love you, verse 46, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? The standard Hebrew greeting was shalom alaka, peace be with you. So many rabbis taught that you should only mumble greetings to Gentiles on holy days, well, because obviously peace was not with them because God was not with them, but Jesus just wants us to greet everyone as if God is with everyone. I used to mumble the gospel, if not with my words, at least with my neuroses. For how can you say God loves you, God is salvation, and God has a wonderful plan for your life if you simultaneously believe that he actually may plan to, to torture you because he's chosen not to save you, for he's going to exhibit his infinite wrath and justice all over you for all eternity. Well, Jesus says, love your enemies and greet everyone. Peter, you don't have to calculate with anyone. Just love them all. Good or evil, just or unjust, just love them all. Verse 47, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles, the unbelievers, do the same, says Jesus. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So how is your heavenly Father perfect? Well, Jesus has just been telling us he perfectly, completely, absolutely loves his enemies. That means he loves those that hate him. That means he loves without conditions. That means that no one determines his love. That means that you cannot make him love you any more or any less than he already does, which means that his love is free. It's absolutely free. He is love and always loves in perfect freedom. That means that when the door to the banquet is closed and the sons of the kingdom weep and gnash their teeth in outer darkness, it means that the door was closed in love. That means that when the fire fell upon Sodom, God was not hating his enemies. God was loving his children. That means that when God gave the order that all would be sacrificed in Jericho, that judgment was the judgment of love. 
And I know what you're thinking, well, how could God take a life? Well, doesn't God take every life? And if what scripture says is true, none of us have actually even begun to live. In fact, all of us are still like in the process of being born. If we could just dare to believe what scripture clearly, clearly says, that this mortal body must put on immortality. And as in Adam all die, so in Christ we'll all be made alive. We might begin to see that being taken from this world is being delivered into another world. Maybe even our home. We think God is taking life, but, but maybe God is giving birth or inducing labor. Remember what Jesus said? All this tribulation, he called it labor. To weep and gnash your teeth in outer darkness is to refuse to love, which is to refuse to be born into the kingdom of God your Father. And to be burned by the fire is to be burned by love, which is the very presence of God your Father. It must be like induced labor, being forced to, to be born. You know when my children didn't love? Often made them go to their room or the green couch where they'd weep and gnash their teeth alone. And then, at the right time, I'd go and sit right next to him, <laughs> turn on the light, make him look at me, make him talk to me. I know that my presence burned their little egos like fire. They thought it meant that I didn't love them, but now they know it meant that I, I would not forsake them. I was setting them free to love and be loved. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, says Jesus. So if you're not perfect and you make yourself God's enemy, what will he do? He'll love the hell out of you, no matter what it costs him. Love the hell out of you or love you out of hell, he loves his enemies until his enemies become his friends. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In a similar place, in a similar sermon, Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. In both places, I think he's paraphrasing Leviticus where God says, be holy, for I am holy. Understand, holiness is mercy. And mercy is Perfection. God is not 50% mercy and 50% not mercy. God is not divided. I'm divided. We're divided. We think that we are one and God is two, but God is one. And we are two. We're each a mixture of good and evil, just and unjust. But God is just. And so he'll make us just, which means right. God is is right. God is 100% right. And God is 100% just. God is 100% holy. God is 100% good. God is 100% love. And God is 100% free, which means he is 100% mercy. And I think he wants us to know it. 
to come to know your Father's absolute mercy might also require a knowledge of your absolute need for mercy and your absolute inability to manipulate or determine that mercy or deserve that mercy, which might require that you do your absolute worst to mercy in order for mercy to reveal his absolute best to you. The good. Remember what Jesus said to Philip? He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And check this out. We've already done our worst to him. You've already taken his life in an effort to justify yourself. You've already taken knowledge of the good in order to make yourself in his image. We've already nailed him to a tree in a garden on the sixth day of creation, sixth day of the week, at the sixth hour of the day because he led us because we did not know that he is good and he is the life. He's the logos of love. That means he's the logic of God. From the bosom of the Father, the heart of the Father, we ask, what was God thinking? He is what God is thinking. We wonder, what is God feeling? He is what God is feeling. We ask, what is God doing? He is what God is doing. He lifted his head and cried, Father, forgive, and it is finished. Tetelestai, from telos, like teleoi in Matthew 5, 48. So Jesus says, be perfect, and it is perfected. Be finished, and it is finished. On the tree at the end of the sixth day, edge of the seventh, it is finished, says Jesus. Well, well what is finished? Well, for one, the revelation of who our Father is. Jesus is, is the revelation of God, and, and God is love, and God is one. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name will be one, prophesied Zechariah. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, imperative tense, and you will, indicative tense, hear and you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. That is, you will be made in the image and likeness of God. And you see, love is not simply a law. Love is a life. And that life is the very life of your Father. So number one, at the cross, it is finished. And number two, at the cross, we are finished. We are perfected to telestai. When we see who our Father is, we will become who we truly are. We love because he first loved us, writes John. Imitate God, writes Paul, as beloved children. My, my children imitated me not because it was the law, but because I was their life. And they wanted to do whatever I was doing. So if I mowed the lawn, John had to mow the lawn. If I ate hot salsa, Elizabeth would eat the very same salsa until cheers would be running down her cheeks and she'd look up to me with those beautiful eyes and say, we love salsa, don't we, Daddy? We love salsa. Because I led a church. They would play church. And they thought it was fun. 
that longing, that desire to imitate the one that you love is called faith. My children lived by faith. Soren Kierkegaard wrote this. The greatest danger for a child where religion is concerned is not that his father or teacher should be an unbeliever, not even in his being a hypocrite. No, the danger lies in, in the father being pious and God-fearing and in the child being convinced thereof, but that the child should nevertheless notice that deep within there lies a hidden, a terrible unrest, a neurosis, if you will. The danger is that the child is provoked to draw a conclusion about God that God is not infinite love. See, if you don't have faith that God is infinite love, you will begin to suffer an infinite neurosis until you collapse at the feet of his revelation of infinite mercy on a tree in the middle of a garden. I find it interesting that Origen of Alexandria had a father that loved God and loved Origen, so much so that when Origen's father was martyred in 202 AD by the Roman Emperor Severus, Origen, 17 years old at the time, Origen had to be restrained in order to keep him from running to his father and being martyred with his dad. So instead, Origen had to settle for becoming the most influential theologian of the first 500 years of the church's existence. He taught the authority of Scripture, that God is our Father, and he will make all of us new in the fullness of time. That's interesting. It's also interesting that Augustine, or Augustine as some people would call him, that Augustine of Hippo had a poor relationship with his father, his father, who had a terrible temper and was unfaithful to Augustine's mother. Augustine was the most influential theologian of the next 500 years, or perhaps a 1,000 years of the church's existence. He taught the authority of Scripture, that God is our Father, and that he will make some people perfect with amazing grace. But with others, with some others, he will exhibit his unceasing and merciless justice in the form of endless torture. That's interesting. Martin Luther also had a terrible relationship with his father, and he suffered an infinite neurosis. Until one day in the tower at Wittenberg, reading St. Paul in Romans chapter 1, he had a, a revelation. The just, which is also translated the righteous, the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped, writes Martin Luther, that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. To justify is to make us right. He makes us right with faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be Reborn, writes Luther, this it is to behold God in faith, that you should look upon his fatherly, friendly heart in which there is no anger or ungraciousness. By grace, Luther came to faith in a new father. Our father, your father, the father of Jesus. That's interesting. Luther is probably the most influential theologian of the last 500 years. Both 
And people will argue this, but I would say this, both among Roman Catholics and uh, amongst Protestants. Yet Luther argued that the Reformation was just barely beginning. In a few short years, though, most of the Protestant churches had turned faith into a law that we must fulfill, rather than a life who will fulfill the law in us. And the church hung on to the notion of hell that we inherited largely from Augustine in a thousand years of alliance with the Roman Empire. But, but we know that during his life, Luther wrestled. He, he knew that a person is only saved by grace through faith, but in a letter to a friend about whether it was possible for God to grant faith to people after death, he wrote, well, who could doubt that God could do such a thing? Well, now you may be thinking, okay, that was a neat little interesting history lesson, Peter, but I'm still feeling neurotic. God is absolute grace. I'm saved by grace through faith, but faith manifests as perfect patience, perfect chastity, perfect fidelity, perfect honesty, perfect forgiveness, and perfect love. I'm incapable of perfect faith. Well, you might find this interesting. Jesus didn't actually say, um, you, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. A literal translation of the Greek reads just like this. You, therefore, will be. Assess the second person, middle indicative form of the verb to, to be. You, therefore, will be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Most all modern English translations turn the indicative into an imperative. So they turn a statement of fact into a command. They turn a prophecy into a law. In my Bible, almost everywhere else, aseste is translated you will be, but here it's translated you must be. If you look this up in a grammar, they'll point out that the future indicative verbs can sometimes be translated as imperative verbs, but pay close attention and you'll discover that they are translated as imperative when the translator doesn't have the faith that they could be indicative. So if the translator doesn't have faith that God could make us in his image, the translator is likely to translate such that we must make ourselves in his image, the perfect image of the invisible God. You will be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If you take that as a command, it will drive you insane and reduce you to nothing. And that may actually be good for a time because once the law has cru crucified your flesh, your pride, your ego, you may at last be able to hear the promise. You will be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, you may say, well, okay, how can that be? Well, on the sixth day of creation, sixth day of the week, after that horrid sixth hour, at the end of the ages, the edge of eternity, on the tree in the garden, Jesus, the life, cried out, Tetelestai. It is finished. It is perfected. He then delivered up his spirit. That's the Holy Spirit which cries, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father, within you. His spirit in you is faith, hope, and love in you. It's perfection rising from the dead within you and even as you. Jesus fulfills the entire law in you. He imputes his righteousness to you. He lives it out in your body.
So Jesus has just described the most stringent ethical code this world has ever known. He knows that his followers are thinking, Jesus Christ, Jesus, this is impossible. I can't do this. And Jesus says, therefore, little brothers, little sisters, don't quit. Don't stop. Don't stop baking with your Easy Bake Ovens. <laughs> Don't stop mowing with your toy mowers. Don't stop preaching your little sermons. Don't stop talking about communion. Don't stop trying to love your neighbor. Don't quit. Because you will be perfect. As your Heavenly Father is perfect. Because you see, that's why I came. I am the word of God. And I make you in the image of God, our Father. So if you're just weary and heavy laden, listen to the word of God and would you let him give you rest? That's life in the seventh day. Close your eyes and just listen. You. I see you. You will be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. For I will not return void. I will accomplish the work for which I was sent. And you will be perfect. You will be. And as you believe that you will be, that perfection will begin to manifest. Even here. Even now. Okay, this is where the church service is, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Now, we, first we're going to pass around the offering. And. Now, what does the water do? It clears up your mind so you can see God better. Oh, well, that's good. Okay. I'm thinking of the three ninjas. God love is a bubbling over. God love is a bubbling over. Yeah, 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 yeah. If you need any praying, you can talk to John. He's right there, and he'll go press you in the back of the prayer room. And today at the children's sermon, we're going to talk about why God made the earth. How did God make the earth? Did he... Make it does make the earth. Well, yeah. <coughs> well, how did God make the earth? Does anybody know? Raise their hands. Who, how he, did God make the earth? John? He used cheese. And I just know why God has given us this world to face the eat. And Jesus for to eat. And mice might eat it. And 
Thank you. Thank you, Coleman. Thank you, Coleman. So do you know what that was? According to leading authorities in church development, that was the worst possible church service that you could ever witness. The songs were off-key. The call for the offering was confusing. The sermon made little sense, and it ended with a question. None of it was performed decently in order, and the sacraments were not rightly administered. Baptism resulted in thoughts of the three ninjas, and, 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 and it was stated that God made the world so we could eat Jesus. God made the world so we could eat toothpaste and Jesus. Technically correct, but lacking in nuance and theological sophistication. That was clearly the worst church service ever conducted, but for me, it was perfection. Because <laughs> I'm their dad. And that was faith. That was a little bit of faith in me which is a little bit of faith in God that I expect to grow as if from a seed and turn into a kingdom, a perfect kingdom, where everything is good and it is finished the seventh day. So the word of God took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take it, eat it. And in the same way, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood. Poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Therefore, you will be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God, we thank you that you are perfect in all of your ways. I thank you, Father, that Jesus is all of your ways. He said, I am the way. I thank you that Jesus is your word. I thank you that when we want to know what's on your heart, we just have to look at the tree and see it hanging there for us, given to us. Dad, that was you on the tree in the middle of the garden. <laughs> we didn't know who you were. And we're just beginning to see Oh, thank you for showing us, even if it hurts like hell, that you're good. You're everything I, 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 I want. So just thank you. God, forgive us for believing lies about you. I know that, that what that creates is a lie in us, that we're not your children. And so God, that's what we surrender at the foot of your cross, the lie that you don't love us. That's the lie that creates 
sons of the devil. But the devil's not the father of sons. The devil's the father of lies. We surrender them to you. And we thank you for what you give us. Sonship, daughtership, however you say that, from the foundation of the world. It's who we are in Jesus' name. Amen. So anyway, um, I had a great father. And I think I failed as a father in a lot of places. I'm sure in other places I was a good father. But wherever I was good, you see, that is a gift that came down from the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow or variation due to change. You may have been sitting in your room for a while alone and weeping, or you may have felt burned by the relentless love of God that just will not leave you alone. But do you understand he's good? You have a good father. So when I say believe the gospel, that's really what I'm saying. And when you doubt it, that's the lie of the evil one. We say he's a good father, and then he whispers, but... He tortures your brothers and sisters forever. I call that Satan's big butt. And I think God has called us to expose Satan's big butt, that it's a lie. And I pray that the Reformation would continue, that um, we would be even maybe get to be a part of it, that the Reformation will continue until we see and we hear every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is within them, worshiping God the Father and the Lamb upon the throne. So in Jesus' name, believe the gospel.